When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us for How She Does It. On this show, we talk about all things women, money, and power. I'm Karen Feinerman. I had long known who our next guest was and had met her at various conferences and women-focused and Wall Street-focused or both events, but it wasn't until she and I found ourselves recruited to a Wall Street roast that had a mandatory dance number that we really had a chance to spend time together. If you don't know Melody, she's the president and co-CEO of Ariel Investments and one of Forbes' most powerful women in America. She's also on the board of J.P. Morgan and is the chairwoman of the board of Starbucks, making her one of the most high-profile corporate directors in the United States. Before we get into the interview, I want to make a quick announcement. Our podcast is now on YouTube. Subscribe to the At Her Money channel to get notified when new episodes come out. And make sure to comment and like if you enjoy the episode. Melody, thank you so much for being here with me today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I always love seeing you. Oh, thanks. Let's just jump right in. Tell us your story. You are the youngest of six children to a single mother. Where did it all begin? It all began in Chicago, where I'm from, a city that I still love, and where Ariel is headquartered, my company. And I was born in Chicago. I'm the youngest of six. I'm really young in my family. My siblings are a couple decades older than me. Same mother, different father. And my mom was industrious, worked so hard, did everything she could to provide, but often had a hard time. And so we had a life that was challenged at times, no harder than anyone else's. It's not to compare, but we did have a lot of experiences of getting evicted and our phone getting disconnected or lights turned off or all sorts of things that weren't great. But it really did establish the sense of focus in me, and it gave me a lot of purpose. And I do tie my interest in money and being in the investment business to those early years where money was both mysterious, elusive, we never had enough, and it was a real struggle. And I wanted to understand 
money. And I thought if I could, I could have a better life. And so in some of the things I've read, your mother would talk to you about money in a way that some other parents wouldn't. I just wrote about this in Barron's. I did an article on financial literacy. My mother made me aware of everything that was going on financially. And I think some people would grip their chest at that idea, even as a young child. I joke that some kids knew the price of candy and I knew what our rent was. She would show me bills and it wasn't to burden me. It was really to help me understand oftentimes the circumstances that we were in. And it gave me a total understanding in a very different way than I think most kids of what it costs to live, truly costs. I remember there were times we were really, really broke and she would go to full service gas stations used to exist where there would be a gas attendant. I don't know why this memory comes to me, but my mom would drive me to school, which was not close by. And she would go to the gas station attendant and she would ask if she could borrow $5 worth of gas to get me to school. Now, you think about that today of what a gallon of gas costs, but my mom would help me to understand how much gas $5 was, which wasn't a lot, but it was enough to get us to school. And gas was obviously much cheaper at that time than it is today. But those were the actual conversations we had. The other thing she did whenever we went to any restaurant, from McDonald's to a diner that she loved, I always paid the check, always. Literally put the money, counted out the money. I remember her going to the bank to deposit a check, and she said and showed me how I must always look and make sure that the receipt represents the account number. And she said, you have to make sure it's going in your account. My mom would do these things. I mean, I didn't really understand at the time how profound it would be because she wasn't actually great with money, believe it or not. My mom would buy Easter dresses instead of pay the light bill, but she did want to make sure that I understood everything. So I know this, as you said, it's important to you. And I know in the Barron's article, for example, you talked about what you want to teach your daughter. And obviously, she's in a different financial circumstance than you were. But what do you feel like, I have to get her to understand this? Which part of it? Well, I think this issue is something that is important for all parents, if you have a lot or you don't have a lot. And I think this idea of teaching kids about money comes with a lot of trepidation for parents. Those who have scarcity feel that it's going to make the child anxious. And those who have abundance thinks it's going to make the child lazy, potentially. And I just don't believe either of those scenarios. I've had scarcity. I've had abundance in my life. I've also seen my child grow up, and she is not in the circumstance I was in by any stretch. But I do believe she needs to understand. She needs to be aware. And so I'm not necessarily sitting down with her and showing her we don't have rent. We own our house. But I am sitting down and I'm explaining a lot of things about money to her. When we go to stores, I always make her pay. I give her the credit card. I have her put it down. I have her look at the receipt. Sometimes we play games of, she loves Sephora. So when she's going to Sephora, I have her look at the prices and we get to the counter and I say, guess how much the bill is going to be for her to really understand what things cost. She has this game that she likes to play on her iPad and she'll ask me if she can buy, she calls it a place. And I've started to teach her how I won't say yes, just to 99 cents. And just things like that, that just giving her a sense of value, what it costs to earn something and, you know, why this is all very important. The other day we were at McDonald's and she asked me about taxes. She said, explain tax to me. 
And I literally, she was like, is it on everything? I said, yes. Were you thrilled? Oh my God, she gets it. (laughs) I then explained to her the differences between taxes in states and then taxes on your income. And I explained to her how you work for several months without getting paid technically because you're paying taxes. And she's like, literally, they don't pay you? I said, no, they pay you. But that's how many months you work that you have to pay the society and explain to her, explain to her the whole thing. It was fascinating. I love doing it. We're having so much fun. And this Christmas, I'm buying her first stocks. Oh, fantastic. Okay. Well, I know you're value-oriented, so you're going to pick something for the long run. I do find it interesting that what you're saying about parents shielding their children, they have no sense of it. And I don't think you're doing them a favor either way. It's funny. My colleague one time, his, this is a while ago, his young son came in and said, Daddy, show me how you win money from the screen. And it was just so surreal. They can't imagine how you make money and what to do with it. And it's so great that you're teaching her that. And it's so much harder today because, first of all, kids see ATMs and credit cards. So the finality of money doesn't have the same meaning, especially to a small child that doesn't understand money being spit out of a machine, it seems free. And so just to explain all of this, or credit cards don't seem real. So there are a lot of reasons to get very specific about it. In the early years, I suggest people with young kids use cash so they can see the finality of it. Right. I know that symbolism is really important to a kid, I think. All right. So Tell me about your relationship with John, who I think of as your work husband, John Rogers, I'm talking about. <laughs> That's what Jamie Dimon calls yeah. it. Yes, I've worked with John Rogers, who founded Ariel, for 32 years, soon to be 33. That's amazing. I've only had one job. Yes, I, I joke with John, you know, I've lasted longer than most <laughs> the other people, including a couple of marriages on his side. But I... John and I have just a unique partnership and we're co-leaders. I started off as a pipsqueak. I was an intern and I moved up through the organization. I was president for over 20 years. And in 2019, I became co-CEO. And I wonder why there aren't more co-leaders. There are co-CEOs at KKR, but it's not a title that you hear. And I joke with people. Most people don't grow up and say, I want to be a co-CEO. But there's, it's, we can divide and conquer we can cover so much more ground together. You have a partner. I joke that when one of us is up and the other one is down, we shore each other up and we just try to make sure we're not down at the same time. So (laughs) you have a shoulder to lean on and we divide our responsibilities. But I can't say enough good things about John because John started Ariel and then shared the reins, not handed them over, shared them. That's extremely rare that especially a founder can do that easily. And I think it's a function of a great deal of trust. And honestly, I have to say love that we have for each other. I tell people all the time, I love John. John is like a family member to me. He's Everest godfather. And we've grown up in this business together in so many ways, even though he's 11 years older than me. It's such an unusual and amazing partnership, and I don't think I've seen anything quite like it, but I remember one time, this was several years ago, seeing you talk about your relationship with John through the very difficult period of 2008, which if you're in the money management business, 2008 was the most treacherous I've ever been in. And the way you talked about 
how each of you were like, I should have done this. I should have done that. And there was never any finger pointing except at yourselves. And that's a really unusual and it's a very graceful way to go about it because when times are really tough, it's hard to say, this was on me. And I just thought that was a tremendous example. Well, we always believe in Ariel of taking 100% responsibility. And both of us took 100% responsibility for that outcome, which was tough. I mean, I can barely talk about it without welling up, I have to tell you. It still leaves a mark. But it was also a time of, we were in a trench together, and it was a time of great bonding. And that that solidified our devotion to each other, because it was so hard. And the loyalty and trust that we solidified during that period has served us through other difficult times and will serve us through life. And we never blamed each other. I felt like from the perspective of the tough time we had, I could have done a better job explaining to clients what to expect from us and how we invested. John felt like he could have picked better stocks during that time. And I kept saying, no, it's not your fault. It's my fault. And he kept saying, no, it's not your fault. It's my fault. And that was great for our team to see. Because there was never any, we weren't upset with each other. I felt I needed to support him and he felt like he needed to support me. And so it was an important time. I hated it in every way, but I value it in every way since then. That was helpful getting through COVID, having had that experience before. We're resilient now. We know how to be in a trench. And so I do appreciate the challenge and the difficulties of that period, even though I hope not to relive them. Right. I do think it's one of the great lessons of taking blame allows other people to relax and try to fix the problem instead of trying to scramble to not get blamed. I found it. Just take the blame. It's interesting. And it's all how you see it. We just had an issue the other day with something and with another colleague. And I put in the email, our general counsel received the email. I said, 100% my fault all me. I do that to also lead our people to see they can take responsibility for something not going well. It's actually better. I find that it takes all the tension and hair out of the room. And then people aren't so defensive or feeling like, and even if it's not, I still say it. Right. I do think, yeah, it shows them, yes, you can take blame and it totally frees people up to, okay, move on. I have more respect for that person. I really do. And most people won't say they made a mistake. It's just the craziest thing, or they don't know an answer. I remember my husband saying something to me once about General Milley and General Milley coming on TV after having uh, done something. And he came on TV and he said, I shouldn't have done that. And George, my husband said to me, he's like, look at that. No one does that anymore. And he's like, that's a great leader. And I thought, wow, that's the mere fact that it's rare. Yes. Well, that brings me to another point, which is being on the boards of Starbucks and J.P. Morgan, you're the chairwoman of the Starbucks board and J.P. Morgan, which are two of the most iconic companies in the world. And by the way, I love Jamie Dimon so much, I can't even tell you. He knows. But when you see him at the next board meeting, tell him I said hi, but he knows. He is a very special leader. Jamie is the kind of leader who on a conference call, I remember he said, and Jamie likes to use somewhat colorful language sometime, they had screwed up something and someone asked, are other banks going to have this trouble? And he said, if you're asking if they're as stupid as we are, I don't know, 
I can only speak for us. <laughs> it's classic Jamie. He's like, and sometimes classic. we're going to step in dog do, and we're going to try not to do that very often. And I just think, why don't other leaders, it's such a positive to say it. I don't understand why other leaders don't say we made a mistake. But so what have you learned? Oh my God, I've learned so much from him. I have to tell you the first story, my first day at on the board of J.P. Morgan. And, you know, I was very excited. I walked into the bank. I'm saying hi to everyone. And I say, it's my first day of school. That's what I'm <laughs> saying to everyone. So they say, Jamie wants to see you at his office for a few minutes before the board meeting. And J.P. Morgan is Mecca, if you're Ariel. This is the largest bank in America, the eighth largest bank in the world. And so I get into the meeting and I tell him, we're just chit-chatting. And I said, my husband is going to change banks. And my husband had only ever been at the same bank for 40 or 50 years. And I said, my husband is going to change banks. And he said, oh, he says, well, I want to know how that goes. Now I'm thinking he's just being polite, right? Uh huh. So I'm like, yeah, Jamie, I'm really going to call you and report back on him changing banks. And he says, no, I want you to understand something. These things can be difficult, especially someone like your husband. And he said, I want to know how it goes because if something goes wrong, that meant it affected a hundred thousand people. That one thing, I magnify it. And I thought, I was like, that is someone that is so focused on excellence that he really sort of thought through every experience. And then how does that experience translate to the vast numbers of people that we serve? Now, nothing went wrong and it was all great. But I just thought the insight that he was looking for wherever he could get it was something that was very important. And so I've learned a lot from him, especially doubling down on what doesn't go well. He doesn't want to sit and have high fives around victory laps. It's more about what could we do better. And I think that's why they are so good. And that's why he's attracted such an outstanding leadership team around him. He has all stars in every corner of that place. I mean, it is unbelievable to meet the leaders there because any of them on their own are exceptional and could be running you know, major institutions. But it's great to see they want to be with him and they see his leadership as being an opportunity to learn, as I do as well, and hopefully an opportunity to contribute. And how about at Starbucks, also another iconic company that's had some ups and downs, had some leadership changes. What have you learned from there? Well, I've been in a boardroom or I was in a boardroom for a long time with Howard Schultz. And Howard Schultz as the founder of the company. I mean, there are few people who have built what he has done in the histories of business. We're in 82 countries, 34, 35,000 restaurants. There's nothing like it, 450,000 or so people. And the fact that it is an iconic brand in the way that it is, there's so much to learn there. I always joke, I always sat to the right of Howard, always, years and years and years. And I know this sounds crazy and maybe even a little creepy, but whenever someone spoke and he wrote something down, I wanted to think to myself, why is he writing that down? So it's like, what is he hearing that I should hear differently or leads. I didn't look at his notes, but I would be very curious about what he would feel the need and then think a lot more about it. But I learned so much from Howard and just how to run a business with values being at the core of who you are and putting your people first at all times, the people and the customer. 
And JP Morgan, the same thing. Starbucks, the same. I mean, DreamWorks, Estee Lauder. These are why these are great brands because they do the right thing. Do you think that kind of leadership can be taught or is it, are you born with it? Is it innate? I don't know how you teach it. I've seen some courageous leadership in some of the rooms that I've been in where I'm like, a lot of people can be Monday morning quarterbacks, but very few people in the moment when it's really hard will make the hard decision. And that is hard to teach. Hard. I haven't figured out how to teach it myself, except to help people to understand that as long as you don't have a fatal failure is okay. But most people, as from what we talked about already, they're not comfortable with that, being uncomfortable. So the vision part, the same thing. You either have it or you don't. And some people have great vision. I think, Howard, when you think about what coffee was then and what it is now, that took a... I can't even remember what pre... Folgers. Like, that was coffee. (laughs) All right. Okay. No wonder I didn't think of it, because that's probably not a product I would have used. All right. So I do know that you did do a masterclass, and you talk about decision-making, and I think this needing a process, it almost doesn't even matter what exactly the process is. It's about... What is the format that allows you to make good decisions? And I think it's such an important lesson to teach that there are are some nuts and bolts of it that um, are really important, gathering information and comparing alternatives and... Seeking input. Seeking input. You know. Yes. And pivoting when you need to. I mean, one of my favorite lines from Warren Buffett, champions adapt adapting when you need to. Sometimes you have a plan and the plan as it plays out doesn't make sense anymore. We read this book during the 0809 crisis called Deep Survival. A lot of people read that book by Lawrence Gonzalez. And he talks about what does it take to survive in a terrible moment? And one of the things he says is rigid people are dangerous people. And you know, if you get too rigid when you're in a plan, a strategic plan especially, it can really sink you. So you have to be able to pivot. And I do believe in seeking out input. I don't think that is a sign of weakness. I think it's a sign of strength. A lot of people won't ask for help. I have so many lifelines I can dial. (laughs) I really, I, and I have no problem doing it. I always think of the Mike Tyson line, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. It's true. How do you write your ship? How do you write the ship? All right, we're gonna have to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, 
invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back with Melody Hobson. So you are probably the most highly visible, most respected Black woman in corporate America. What is that responsibility and opportunity of that role? I would say that it's a responsibility. And the responsibility is one I take very seriously. And I know everything emotes. And so I hopefully am very authentic. I'm not living my life for other people. But I'm very cognizant of the fact that people watch me. And they watch me in ways that might affect their thinking. And so I want to be really responsible. And that's comes in all sorts of forms and fashion, things that I will do, things that I won't do. I do speak my truth. I think that's extremely important, but I say it's my truth. And in that situation, it's truth with a small T, not a capital T, because my truth doesn't mean it's what you believe. And I can be okay with that, having a different set of beliefs than you, but not being willing to compromise on my values. And what I do know is that I could make it easier or harder for people who come after me and easier if there's a sense of not having some expectation that we can't be excellent. And so that's why I put a lot into not perfection, but striving to be as excellent as I can possibly be, recognizing I'm going to make mistakes and I'm human, but trying really hard. I mean, trying really hard. And then the one last thing I would say is that I think that I want to make sure that I break people's mental models. They have an idea sometimes of what a leader should look like, should dress like, should be like. And at times I want to just tell them your idea then constricts your reality and it doesn't allow for more or other or different. And so maybe if you meet me and I'm a little bit different, your idea shifts and that becomes the opportunity opens for others. And I don't say that in some sort of explicit bias I just mean it in terms of not even recognizing at times. It's a unique role that you're in. Tell us about Project Black, which is an ambitious endeavor, and people might not know about it. So we started a private equity business, and we started a fund that closed earlier this year, early in 2023. And our goal is to scale sustainable minority businesses by bringing two things together, capital and customers. A lot of this idea was born of a phone call from Jamie Dimon after the horrific murder of George Floyd. And he said, a lot of people want to help black businesses. And he started to brainstorm some things that they were thinking about. And I said, I think I have a really good idea. So I went home and I wrote a memo over a weekend. And in the spirit of investment banking, I gave it a pseudonym and I called it Project Black. And I sent it to him. And it was this idea of, could we do something that had never been done before? which was to buy mid-market businesses that may not necessarily be minority-owned when we buy them, but by virtue of our ownership at Ariel, become minority-owned businesses that ultimately become tier one suppliers to Fortune 500 companies, the essential workers for the Fortune 500 companies, allowing those businesses to grow. This was based upon the fact that when we looked at the data, 95% of black and brown businesses in this country have less than $5 million in revenue, 95%. 
only five black businesses in the United States have more than a billion dollars in revenue. So if you're a major Fortune 500 company and you want to diversify your supply chain, which many people wanted to do post-COVID literally and figuratively, literally because of some of the supply chain problems that they have, figuratively as well because of recognizing maybe they hadn't been as inclusive in their vendor selection as they should have been. If you wanted to do it, you didn't have businesses of scale to work with. And no corporation wants to write a hundred different $2 million purchase orders. They'd like to write a $200 million purchase order. But if you don't have the businesses of scale to be able to handle that opportunity, we can't change society, narrow the wealth gap, change the way people think about business. Instead of people thinking about minority businesses being small and disadvantaged, we want there to be a day when they think of minority businesses being large and advantaged. And the reason that is profound is because as you have that equity and that opportunity ripple through the community, you narrow the wealth gap and create a stronger society. Mm -hmm. It's such an unusual, unique approach to sort of take a middle market as you said. And really, I mean, there's a lot of leverage there. Once I read it, I'm like, oh, well, that makes perfect sense. And I hadn't ever considered that before. It's always a focus on, all right, let's start from the very small. And how do we build that up? If you start really small, it's literally decades until anything happens. And so we just kept saying, there are a bunch of people doing small. But we said, let's go big or go home, (laughs) literally. (laughs) And so let's do it in a way that no one has ever done it before. And when considering all of the private equity funds and everything that has been done, when I went to people, they literally looked at me and they said, we never thought of this. It was an original idea. I think the most brilliant ideas are in hindsight, so obvious, and yet nobody has ever looked at them that way. And wow. That is fantastic. So you're you're not even quite one year in. I know you've done... Right. We've bought three companies. So our first company is a company called Sorensen Communications. They provide tech-enabled services for the deaf and hard of hearing. And they're the largest in their area, in their field. It's a perfect business for us. We're very excited. We're very excited about the growth opportunities. A lot of their business has been B2B where people provide those services to employees. Deaf and hard of hearing employees have much lower turnover than the traditional employee base. But we see great opportunities to provide that to customers, to provide language translation. There are a lot of opportunities with Sorensen that still exist. Then we recently bought a business last week called MyCode. And MyCode is a multicultural advertising-related business that targets specific communities, Hispanic communities, women, Asian community, et cetera. And they provide direct marketing-related opportunities to those communities. And so big brands use MyCode to get to customers that they want. And we, again, perfect aerial business for us to own. Great leadership based in Los Angeles. Sorensen's based in Salt Lake City. And we just have great plans for these businesses. We think that they're at the beginning of a great journey. So you're off. You're off and running. Yeah, we are off and running. So it's good. Fantastic. All right. I have one more question before we get to the lightning round. You have an amazing story. You are self-made, tremendously hardworking. And you find yourself at the nexus of power and wealth and glamour. Your husband, for those who don't know, is George Lucas, the creator of Star Wars. And you have a beautiful daughter 
So deep down somewhere in that little girl who knew how much the rent was, did you know that you were destined for this life? So first of all, I don't think anyone is self-made. I want to say that. I think I'm a composite of a lot of people who poured their hearts into me. My family, teachers, working with John Rogers, Howard Schultz. I could just go on and on with people who I think really invested in me. So many friends that are mutual friends of ours. So I just don't believe in that concept. I don't think anyone is self-made, truly. But the hard work is... is The hard working is true. Mm -hmm. I cannot work anyone. (laughs) I mean, I really, I do pride myself in my work ethic. I did learn that work ethic from my mother. I would say that realistically, there is no way that I could foresee this life that I have. And I'm so humbled by it. I am aghast at times at my own life. And I am amazed And I just feel such gratitude for things big and small that it would be hard for most people to even imagine. There are days I wake up, I'm just so grateful to have a place to live. I'm so grateful to be able to pay my bills. I know that sounds crazy because I've lived in situations where we literally couldn't, where we were just trying to piece together an existence. And it lives inside of me in a very well well way that I've never been able to walk off. And so that part I couldn't imagine. I feel gratitude for all the greatness around me that I can learn from my own husband, who's one of the wisest people I've ever met in my life. And I sit there and say, wow, I'm so lucky I could learn that nugget today from him. And so, no, it's not imaginable. But what I will say, I refuse to have the life that I had before. I knew it as a child. And I started to focus in a way that it would be impossible for most people to understand. I was laser focused on a better life. And so I used to do things that were just so crazy that I didn't have anywhere to do my homework. So I sat in the bathroom and I used the toilet as my desk and I sat there for hours and my house was really noisy sometimes No one will like the story probably, but I would run the tub water to drown out the noise Uh so that I could, could, so that I could think quietly. So just things that it would be hard for anyone to understand, but where I said, I have to focus. I was talking to some athletes recently and I said, you knew you were the out for your entire family, that everyone, your community was taught counting on you. That's how I felt. All right, we're going to take a quick break and be back with the lightning round. And we're back with the lightning round. So this is just, would you rather, you just got to just top of your head, which you choose. Here we go. Okay, got it. Underdressed or overdressed? Overdressed. I knew you would say that. I know you love clothes. Okay, that was a layup. Would you rather laugh uncontrollably or be moved? Wow, that's hard. I'm going to go for be moved. Would you rather drive or be driven? Be driven. Black tie or barbecue? Black tie. Chicago or Northern California? Chicago. Okay, you're a Chicago girl. All right, Han Solo or Luke Skywalker? Han Solo. (laughs) That wasn't even close. Okay, modern art or old masters? Modern art. Good book or a good movie? I'm going to go for the movie. For the book then. Fiction or nonfiction? Nonfiction. What are you reading right now? Um, I just got one of Simon Sinek's books. You know, he's that person on leadership and development. The Infinite Game. The Infinite Game is the new. Yeah. Okay. Last one. 
what is the best investment you've ever made and the worst investment you've ever made? Any definition of investment is fine. The best investment I've ever made, this is going to be such a cliche, but it's actually not going to be financial. It's in the relationships that I have. I think it takes time, energy, and a real commitment. And I've had people in my life that are so important to me that I really feel grateful that I that I made the effort. That's a great the answer. The worst investment I ever made was, it's so funny, all of my money is in Ariel. <laughs> the worst investment I ever made. There are a couple of companies that I invested in that didn't do well. And I think they were related to something that I don't do, which is they weren't value stocks. They were hot stocks at the moment. I do think, though, you have a good decision process, and sometimes it doesn't work out. And that doesn't mean yes. you made a bad decision. No, it, it's absolutely true. And the reverse is true. You could have a bad process, but it worked out. And you can't mistake that for a good process and thinking you're smart. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, process is very important. And how you make a decision, as long as you consistently apply that point of view. And the, the example that I can give you of where I had a bad decision, it was I didn't let my rules, I, I let go of some of my rules. Well, Melody, I am so thankful for your time. I know you don't have very much of it at all, but thank you for spending the time with me. Thank you for having me. And you know I'm a fan of yours. Oh, thank I you. I love seeing you on television, <laughs> and I have learned so much from you over the years, and I appreciate everything you do. Thank you. You are a model for so many women. Thank you so much for joining me today on How She Does It. Thank you so much to Melody Hobson for sharing her inspirational story on her rise to becoming one of the most important women in America. When you have a moment, please follow us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to updates from the Her Money community at hermoney.com slash subscribe. Our producers are Catherine Tuggle and Haley Pascalides with help from everyone at Her Money. This podcast is mixed and mastered out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is from Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you here with us again. Onward.